Great, thank you, Jens, and it's great to be uh, with you, and uh, greetings from uh, Christchurch. When I uh, left this morning um, to walk down, because I was preaching at the nine o'clock service, uh, Waterstone Road was actually where Christchurch is, was all sealed off either, either side with barriers saying that you mustn't go past this point. I'm re- hoping that actually someone has gone to Christchurch uh, this morning. I've heard a rumour that they've moved the barriers actually the other side of the church, so... Um, it's wonderful to be uh, with you, and uh, thank you to, to Mike and to Lucy for inviting me uh, to preach across the services today, and um, actually to trust me with kickstarting this series, looking at the Sermon on the Mount, as we consider what it means to be distinctive uh, in our world. Uh, at Christchurch, we use a phrase, and we talk about our front lines those places where we spend the majority of our time when we're not in church or asleep. So for some people, that will be the workplace. Uh, For others, it will be maybe at the school gate. For others, it might be a particular club or a group that they belong to, a U3A group, for example. Uh, For me, my front line uh, is Guildford Hockey Club. That's the place where uh, I spend my my time, my leisure time. It's where I spend my time seeking uh, to uh, shine uh, for Christ. Uh, we can have more than one front line. There may be a number of places where we are uh, uh, spending our time and meeting with other people who don't know yet know uh, the Lord uh, Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, is hugely important for those of us who are followers of Christ uh, to live out our faith. And if there's one thing that, a uh, theme that runs through Uh, these chapters, it's this, that we are called to think and to act differently to those in the world. We're called to act and think uh, differently. God's kingdom turns everything upside down and God's values are not like the values of the world. And uh, Matthew 5, 5 to 7 is where helping us to understand that a little bit more and helps us to apply that to our lives. But of course, it's not always easy and sometimes it's hard work and sometimes there's that temptation isn't there to sort of blend in you know to say actually do you know what lord it's it's too hard to be a witness i was saying to my congregation um last week i played a game of hockey the day before and uh, i was saying to them how um i hadn't realized before that saturday that that the person who was playing alongside me in central defense uh, was a follower because he mentioned the name of the lord jesus many many times (laughs) in the game. In fact, you know, I've been praying for the number of opportunities to say Jesus Christ, uh, but maybe not in the way that he was saying it. But it's a hard front line, and sometimes, you know what, it'd be just a lot easier to blend in. The first time I ever came to a service here at St. Saviour's, it was about 15 years ago, and I was leading another church then, and uh, it was a hard, I'd gone from a church of sort of over 400 to a church of about 20 people. It It was financially bankrupt, it was spiritually bankrupt, it was hard work. And I'd met up with uh, David Bracewell, who was the incumbent then here, and uh, I'd say, do you mind if Anna, my wife, and I, uh, we, we come occasionally, slip in at the back of the evening service uh, just to receive, because it's exhausting, it's hard work where we're at. We, we just sort of just need a top up. And David said, absolutely fine, just, just come in and you can be anonymous and uh, just receive from God. And Thank you very much. And so we did that occasionally. One particular Sunday evening, Simon Holland, who was the associate minister at the time, uh, was preaching. I can't quite remember what it, uh, 
what it was about, but it was something along the lines of what we're talking about today. And towards the end of his um, service uh, sermon, he started to walk down uh, the aisle, and he was talking about um, the way that we're called to be witnesses in the places where we are. So he said, look, and here's Jim, and Jim's in banking, and uh, Jim is called to be a witness in that place. And he said, and here's Julian, and Julie's a school mum, and she's called to be a witness in that place. And here's Nick, and he's a vicar down the road. And he's got, Nick, will you stand up? You know, because you are called, you have an important ministry. You know, you try and blend in. Sometimes it's really, really difficult. I wonder whether this is a, a helpful picture for you. Yet we're called not to be thermometers which adjust to the moral climate around us, but we're called to be thermostats that set the temperature of the environment in which we inhabit the places we inhabit, the front lines we are. We're called to be thermostats, to be different, to be radical, to be distinctive, not to merge in with whatever we find around us. Because Jesus calls us to live this counter, this authentic counter-cultural life. He calls us to live distinctive lives, showing others the joy of what it means to be part of God's family. Now, if we're honest, for some of us, that just means we've got to cheer up. There's nothing worse than a miserable-looking Christian. It doesn't reflect the joy of what it means to live a life full of God's Spirit. But the Sermon on the Mount is wonderful because it does a number of things. It shows us how that we are to grow in integrity and in our character. It shows us how we're to grow in maturity and how to become more like Christ. And this morning we're thinking about the, the... this first part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes. The term comes from the Latin beatus, which means happy or or blessed. But there's actually quite a depth in that understanding of the word uh, blessed, because it's more than just skipping along that sort of happiness. It actually means about being the recipient of God's favor. It means about having that inner joy, that inner contentment, which comes from being in a relationship with Christ. There are eight Beatitudes. The first four help us think about our relationship with God. The latter four help us think about our relationship and our witness to others. And we we haven't got time to look at all eight this morning. We're just going to focus on those first four. Why is that? Because I think if we are going to live distinctive lives in the world around us, if we are going to be witness to those in our workplaces, our schools, our colleges, at the school gate, the groups, the societies we belong to, then actually we can only do that effectively if we are rooted in Christ, if we have a strong relationship with the Lord, if we have surrendered ourselves to God. Do you remember that time when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And what did Jesus say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, it's hard to do the latter if you're not doing the former. Yes, we can love our neighbours in a way. But when we do it out of our response to knowing the love of God, then it becomes much more effective. It looks much more distinctive. So let's dive in to uh, the first of these Beatitudes, where Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God of heaven. Notice Jesus uh, doesn't say blessed are the poor, full stop, but the poor in spirit. Yes, we know that Jesus had and has still a heart for the poor, 
But he's talking about something slightly different here. He's talking about spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy. You know, there's something worse than being broke, and that's not knowing that you're broke. People who have no money and keep buying on credit are in deeper trouble than those who have no money and recognize it. I remember when I was at university, in my first year, I was in, in a hall complex, and there was a girl called Viv, uh, who was on my uh, floor, and um, she, she was quite extravagant, you know, for a student, you know, she'd go out and buy outfits and stuff, she'd always be in something uh, new. And then uh, one day, towards the end of the term, I came across her, and she was looking a bit, bit troubled, and I said, well, what's, what's up? She said, uh, I've just realized something. She said, I've been looking at my bank statement this term and the money's been going up. And I've been thinking, great, my parents have just been putting money in to keep me going all this time. But I've suddenly realised the word, the letters OD against the figures as I've been going through the term. And apparently that means I'm overdrawn. <laughs> and it had been going up and up. She was in debt and she didn't realise it. You know, the very first step in coming to God is to recognize that we are spiritually broken. We are spiritually bankrupt. We have no resources to offer God. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. I think of that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee who boasts of his spiritual riches, who comes before God and says, God, you know, I fast. I tithe, I keep the law. You know, you're not going to find anyone much better than me. In fact, you know, compared to that tax collector, I'm the bee's knees. And what is it that the tax collector prays? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that the tax collector went away justified. The Pharisee did not. The tax collector recognized his spiritual poverty. We all know, don't we, the well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, and John Newton, who wrote it. I wonder if you've ever thought about the words of the first line. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, John Newton, before he came to faith, he, he was a bad man. But he recognized his spiritual poverty before God. He called himself a wretch. But he also recognized what God had done in his life. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, there's this strange uh, paradox in the Christian life that the closer to uh, God we get, yes, the more loved we know we are, but often the more unworthy we feel about ourselves as we recognize that we come having nothing to offer to God. The prophet Isaiah, when he was in the temple and he saw the Lord, his immediate reaction was, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm unworthy. I think this is important for us to recognize this. But actually, we need to recognize where we start from. If God is calling us to be a blessing to the world, if he is calling us to be distinctive, to live a life worthy of his name, if we wish to receive God's blessing and to be a blessing to others, we need to recognize where we start with God. Because when we quit relying on our own goodness and turn to God, he forgives, he saves, he puts his righteousness in us. 
Only then are we promised the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus goes on, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I wonder uh, how you understand that word mourn. It's a sentence, a scripture that we read, or I read at every funeral I take. And yet Jesus isn't necessarily talking here about mourning over the loss of a loved ones. He's actually talking about mourning and grieving over our sin. That's not a word we use a, a lot today in our culture and even churches are now shying away from talking about the reality of sin. And yet isn't it interesting, we're quick to point out the sin in others, but often spiritually blind to our own sin. But that word that's translated as mourn, blessed be those who mourn, it, it points to a sort of a heart rending, a, a soul racking, a eyes overflowing with tears kind of mourning. You know, it recognizes the loss of something important. It understands that there is a, a hole in our heart that needs to be repaired. Because it's not enough just to recognize our spiritual poverty, but actually we also then need to come to the Lord and repent, to recognize how much our sin offends the heart of God. Paul writing to the church in Corinth said this, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And I think we've fallen into a trap, if I'm honest, that we come to our churches Sunday after Sunday thinking that God ought to be glad that we've deigned to bless him with our presence. But actually, no, we come to gather as his people. We come to recognize who we are before God. We come to say, Lord, without you, we are nothing. We need to know your forgiveness so that we might seek to be your people but we might seek to be your blessing. Chuck Swindle, uh, a former, uh, he's with the Lord now, but he was a, a prison pastor in the States, said this. He said, God loves the broken heart, the bent knee, and the wet eye. At the nine o'clock service earlier this morning, we celebrated communion together. And scripture tells us that when we do that, we proclaim the death of Christ. Why did he have to die? Well, it's because we are sinners. We need to know God's forgiveness. And we experience that, don't we, when we enter into that relationship with him. Romans 5, chapter 8, offers us that good news. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. Not because of what we've done, but because of who he is. See, what you begin to see here in these Beatitudes, where we think of just simple sayings, bless this, bless that, actually Jesus is beginning to lay out how we are to approach God so that we might seek to be a blessing and be distinctive. We need to recognize our spiritual poverty. We need to recognize our sin and seek forgiveness. But then Jesus goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, if that's okay with you. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word meek. If someone described you as, well, do you know what? You're the meekest person I've ever met, Jens. I wonder whether you'd sound that as a compliment or you know, find it 
a little bit unnerving because often when we, we think of someone who's meek, we think of someone who's insecure or uh, unassertive or timid, but that's not what the Bible means by meekness. What it means is strength under control. It was a term that was used to a, to a horse that was being ridden and when it, it sort of, uh, the rider exerted uh, the, the, it, their, their power or rather actually the horse coming under submission of the rider. And what when we do, this, this sense of meekness, this strength under control is we surrender ourselves to God. We say, Lord, I'm not gonna fight you anymore. I surrender my life to you. I'm gonna allow you to shape my character, my attitudes, my words, my actions. You know, a number of characters in the Bible are described as meek. Abraham, Moses, David, even Jesus. We all find in scripture they're described as meek. And yet, what an amazing group of people. And so when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, he was commending those who had surrendered their strong self-will to the authority of God in their daily lives. And Jesus promises that they will inherit the earth. It's the meek who will share with him the kingdom of God. You know, our world says one thing, that you've got to be strong and you've got to be assertive and you've got to be self-promoting. And yes, when we look around, often it's those who get ahead in the world. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, everything is turned upside down if you are to be a blessing. But rather it is the meek who will inherit the earth. And then the fourth uh, blessing in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I love that Jens asked the question, uh, did, did you feel thirsty or exhausted at the end of the run? Uh, because there are times, isn't it, when we feel hungry and we feel uh, thirsty. My kids, they come back uh, from school most days, they go, oh, I'm famished. I go, well, what did you have for lunch? Oh, we had this. That sounds pretty good to me. Oh, it hasn't filled me up. I have to pump lots of food into them. <laughs> and if you're a parent, you will identify with that because it's a mood changer, isn't it, as well, food? But you know, Jesus wasn't talking about something that could be relieved with an after-school snack or some bottled water. Jesus, when he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's, he's referring to that sort of ravenous, body-numbing hunger, that dries dust thirst, which needs to be um, dealt with. I wonder, what are you hungry and thirsty for? Jesus calls us to be hungry and thirsty after righteousness, to seek after God's own heart, to seek after him with a passion. I wonder whether that is true of our lives. The psalmist expressed it like this in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. In other words, my soul longs for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Is it realistic 
for us to long for that self-same, all-consuming passion for God. What would an all-consuming passion for him look like in our lives? Do we have that pressing desire to want to grow in our relationship with him so that we might be the people that God has called us to be, that we might seek to live out this upside-down kingdom on our front lines? The Christian who is hungry and thirsty is a Christian who longs to be close to the heart of God, to Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Moses, David, Paul, they each in their own way expressed that hunger and desire. Men who knew God in an intimate way and yet were hungry for more. They wanted to know him more intimately, more personally, more powerfully. They had that hunger and thirst for God. They had a passion for him. And we need that self-same hunger because that will affect then how we seek to be distinctive in our world. I love the prayer of a Scottish saint in summing up this particular beatitude who prayed this. Oh God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. It's a great prayer, isn't it? So as I come towards the end, Let's go back to that picture of what it means to be a thermostat rather than a thermometer. Someone who sets the standard for our culture. How do we do that? We do that when we're rooted in Christ, when we recognize who we are. We recognize, yes, our spiritual poverty, but we don't stay in that because God urges us to come before him, to confess our sins, to know his forgiveness, to humble ourselves, that he may be Lord of our lives and that we may seek after him. And when we do that, God will pour his spirit upon us and will give us the means to go and live out the lives that he's called us to live in his world. It is his world that we are called to serve. That reading from Philippians, if we'd gone on a few verses, it talks about us shining as stars if we are to shine as stars for God in our world, then we need to be in that right relationship with God. If we are to love those around us, then let us love and surrender ourselves to God first. Let us humble ourselves. Let's pray.